0: All right, good morning to all of you. It's good to be together today and to open up the Word of God, and especially on this Reformation Day that we have, it's a special Sunday when it falls actually on, um, when October 31st falls actually on a Lord's Day that only happens every seven years or so, and so um, even singing that Reformation song, that last verse, we usually don't sing because it's not Reformation Day, on this Reformation Lord's Day, you know, and so... Uh, What a blessing. And then, if you're visiting with us, just say I know we have a few visitors, uh, a warm welcome to you. And we invite you to stay for our fellowship meal that we'll have uh, just immediately following this service. And uh, there's plenty of food. We don't want to take any home. So please pray about staying and eating our food so we don't have to take it home. Okay, Bob? (laughs) And Bob? Um, You should, uh, in your bulletin, find an outline uh, for today if you'd like to follow along. And We are taking a break from our exposition in Hebrews. Uh, We do preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church, and um, uh, we're currently in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and we will resume that next week. But today, seeing that Reformation Day actually fell on a Lord's Day, and also knowing that there's some newer folks that maybe aren't. Quite as uh, familiar with reformational doctrines, I thought it would be helpful for our people to actually hear this. And the five solas, you know, those of you that come, you see these five solas up here. maybe you're, you don't know exactly what it means. maybe you have some indication of what it means, but well, we're going to expound that, not in that order. That's not your outline. Use my outline, <laughs> because it should be scripture. We start with scripture. And um, so we will do that. Our brother reads from Psalm. 32, and one of the most important questions that arise in, for humanity really is, first of all, is there a God? Well, deep down we all know there's a God, right? So the, so the first question is, how can I be right with God? And you see, David, in agony, your hand was heavy upon me. You know, my, my strength was gone until what, I acknowledged my sin to you and you restored me. What a beautiful thing. The doctrine of salvation or soteriology, to use the the more theological term, is how can man be saved? How can we be right with God? Is it just simply filling out a little card? Is it raising a hand? Is it coming up here after the service? And whiz-bang, you're saved forever. Is that how it works? No, it's a little bit more detailed than that. We don't want to complicate the simplicity of the gospel, but how can one be right with God? And you think of all the religions of the world, all of the isms when we go down to Balboa Park to witness, and you've got this ism, that ism, this ism. Actually, the Harry Christians are back, believe it or not. I saw them about a month ago there. Um, you know, They all have their view, but you know what? I'm here to tell you there's only two religions in the world. The religion of human effort, working, whatever it is, doing all your works, or divine accomplishment. Divine accomplishment. Man cannot save himself. God saves us. He is the one. Well, what I'm going to do is we're going to be looking at a few different texts. Um, Galatians 2 we'll touch on. Uh, Ephesians 2 is what I'm going to read. So I'd ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses for us. As you know, those of you that are familiar with this, it shows our depravity, how we're dead in sin, but God, how he intervenes, and then how we're saved, and then even after we're saved, we're his workmanship. So, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them too, all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you so much for the Protestant Reformation and the men that you used, the the forerunners to the Reformation, and and those that were key, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others in the Reformation, John Knox. Lord, we know that you use weak and fallible men, and we pray that you would strengthen this weak man that is speaking your word today, that you would... Fill with the Holy Spirit that only your words would come out, and that these would be words of edification and to the building up of your church, your bride, your prized possession, the blood-bought church of Christ. And so be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well today as we look at the solas of the Reformation, I think it might be helpful to address some of the historical circumstances that were going on around the Reformation and to sort of give a, a not a full church history thing, but just a little bit. And, and really the Reformation was birthed out of the heirs of the Roman Catholic Church. If you're here today and maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church or maybe you still go attend a Catholic Church and someone brought you here today, this is not intended to offend you, okay? The spark of the Reformation can be traced back to one single event 504 years from today, from this very day. An Augustinian monk nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther was asking questions, how can one be just before a holy God? And this is why the doctrine of justification by faith alone in our catechism, we just recently touched on that, right? Our catechism we do at the beginning of service. How can one be right with God if we're justified by faith? That's so important. Understanding that doctrine is so vital to understanding how we can be right with God. Most of us believe that God created the world in six days, including man on the sixth day. Uh, on that sixth day and then he rested on the seventh day but God did not choose to redeem every single person that he created his ways are much higher than our ways his thoughts much higher than our thoughts who can know the mind of the Lord right and so that's a mystery but he's chosen to save some this is the amazing thing think of a Niagara Falls all of humanity is water let's say right And all of humanity has fallen in Adam and destined to die and perish and and be an everlasting punishment in hell. All of fallen humanity is falling over and God in his mercy takes a bucket to catch some. Now we know that some is a number that no man can number or count from Revelation 7. We know many will be saved. Um, We don't know who those are, but he redeems fallen humanity of his sovereign grace. I've used this illustration before, but it just points so well to being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. There was once a little boy, Tom, who had built a little boat, and he was finally going to put it on its maiden voyage alongside of a river, and he he, he let it out on a string, you know, and, and was walking down with it. And the wind came, and the string broke, and the boat went down, and he kept running and running, and finally the boat was out of sight. He was coming home from school a couple days later walked by a a shopkeeper, and he saw his boat in the window. And he goes, sir, that's my boat! He goes, no, sorry, it'll cost you a dollar if you want it. Tom ran home, dumped out all of his coins. This is obviously a story from some time ago. Exactly one dollar in coins. He goes back, and he lays it down. Sir, here is the money. And he was ecstatic that he got his boat back. And as he hugged his boat that he spent so much time building, he said, now you're twice mine. First I made you, now I bought you. That's what God has done with us. He's created us. But, but for those of us that are in Christ, the, the immeasurable love and mercy that He redeems us should make your hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's good news Well, the Roman Catholic Church distorted these things. They degenerated into many errors and and hints in church history. Just roughly God's always had his remnant, but from 500 to the year 1500, you got a thousand years of what's commonly referred to as the Dark Ages. The Roman Catholic Church dominated during this time. The Pope claimed to be the head of the church. The Pope could speak ex cathedra, And it was like the very Word of God, the 67th book of the Bible, every time he would speak. It led to a tyrannical exercise of power over churches. Power does corrupt. Popes used military power and huge amounts of wealth, and there was enormous moral scandals. There was times, like in the 12th century, where there was Two popes, there was once when there was three popes, and they're anathemizing the other two, and they're anathemizing each other. It's just chaos. And that's what sin does. And the Bible does speak of this man of lawlessness. The Bible in Revelation 13 speaks of the beast. When he opens his mouth, blasphemies come out. And this Roman Catholic Church, well, who is Martin Luther? Well, the story of Martin Luther is a fascinating one. He's born in 1483. Just think of that, kids. 1483, that's a long, long time ago. He was training to be a lawyer in July 1503. He's on horseback, riding lightning strikes so close to him it knocks him off the horse. And when he arrived home, he told his father he was afraid of death and divine judgment, and he vowed at that point to serve God. He became an augustinian monk five days later he devoted himself to fasting and prayer and frequent confessions but he was tormented like david in psalm 32 by the guilt of his sin his sin had not been dealt with yet he was in despair he trembled at the smallest thing and he would even later say at the very rustling of a leaf he would be on edge and that's what guilt does 1507, he was ordained to be a priest and began to study the Bible. How about that? (laughs) You study the Bible, right? And so he, and 1512, becomes a doctor of theology. He's still troubled about his sin and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But while teaching the book of Romans, the passage came up, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That impacted him. His his 95 theses on that day, 504 years ago today, were a scholarly objection to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, And he had hoped that there would be dialogue. Let's talk about these things. I think we've kind of gone off the rails. Of course, that was not the response. The Gutenberg Press, when was that invented? Not, not just a couple decades before Luther. So what happened was these theses, somebody got them, took them down, and made mass copies, and it was sent all over Europe. First all over Germany, and then all over Europe. So you can imagine what this is doing. That, it's like the wildfires we have here in San Diego. It's like a spark in Ramona. It was that, 15 years ago. That fire with the Santa Ana winds just spread for 20, 30, 40 miles in the course of one night, and that's the way this Reformation spread. These scholarly objections. Luther wanted the church to correct her ways and that God's free gospel of grace given to the people rather than the guilt that they were giving them. So we're going to consider this today under five, and we're going to look at these five solas. And um, you have your outline there. The, the reformers in articulating the five solas were used as propositions to state central truths they explain how these five things all work together they all work together in the plan of god yet each one is distinct in itself and so based on scripture alone which is the way our confession of faith begins the the holy scriptures most systematic theologies scripture alone we can affirm that we're justified by grace alone Through faith alone, through Christ or in faith alone, through Christ alone, and all for whose glory? Ourselves? No, sola de la gloria, glory to God. So let's begin and go through this, looking at your outline. Sola scriptura. I have our only foundation. It's not the doctrines of Rome. It's not the Book of Mormon. It's not any of these extra Watchtower Society. You just fill in the blank. It's Scripture alone. The final 66 books of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, that is our authority. <clears throat> it is our only guide and rule for practice. The Bible is authoritative over the church to protect it, to guard it against man's carnal reasonings. I mean, all you have to do is flip on, what is it, TBN or you know one of these God channels and just kind of look at at it, it, it the, the carnal reasonings and the new thing that's come down the pike, the thing that'll draw a crowd. Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3 says. I'm going to quote a lot of Scripture, but also I'm just going to refer to some. If we turn to it all, we'd have a two-hour sermon. So. <laughs> and it is sufficient to be equipped. Like I said, Ark in 1689 London Baptist begins chapter 1, first paragraph, first sentence. And by the way, the Baptist added this sentence. Um, the Westminster starts following this. The Holy Scriptures is the only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Martin Luther, after studying Romans and the Psalms during this time as God was using him as he lectured on these books, he said this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I fell myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. He's he's articulating how this crystallized of how he could be right with God. And this is why we need to hear the Bible preached. We don't need to hear man's opinions. We don't need to hear about politics and the Biden administration and the Antichrist and how many weeks there are in Daniel and where's the missing week and all that. We need to hear the word, how we can be right with God. That's what we need. That's what will fortify us and strengthen our faith that we can go to a lost and dying world and have an impact for good. Luther said this, a simple layman armed with the scriptures is to be be believed above popes and councils. Just A simple layman that actually has the Word of God that's infallible. Secondly, under this head, the Bible is authoritative in the church, not priests and popes. Luther was constantly asked, in all of these trials and, and, and all of this, he was constantly asked, by what authority do you do these things? Are you alone wise, they would ask him? And his answer was that he acted upon the authority of the Holy Scriptures. Right? Not his authority. Not my authority preaching. It's the authority of the Holy Scriptures. In Luther's day, just before the Reformation, lay people were told that they shouldn't even try to read or interpret the Holy Scriptures, but leave that to the priests and clerics, the so-called experts. But we believe in sola scriptura, even the Vatican II handbook, which came out, what, a couple decades ago? It's for today's Catholic, says this tradition. Steve said it's our tra- tradition to read a uh, catechism question. That doesn't mean it's a man made tradition, right? It's just, it's a practice that we do. But this is, so when I read tradition with this, it's meant in a different fashion. Tradition and scripture form one sacred deposit of the Word of God which is committed to the church. You see that? They're acknowledging, oh, we believe sola scriptura and tradition, right? Just like they say, oh, we believe justification by faith plus works, right? One man said, Catholics say the Bible is not the sole rule of faith, and nothing in the Bible suggests that it is meant to be. I guess their Bible doesn't have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that it's breathed by God. The Pope is an Antichrist. Um, he puts himself in the place of God, accepting worship, right? Claiming to be infallible. He is not the final authority in matters of doctrine. Even the current Pope just met with our president, right? A few, or our president met with him, whatever that was. I mean, look at how far, even they've departed. It's like not even holding to, he doesn't even hold to many of the core truths. Of the faith, accepts worship. Many unbiblical doctrines came about. Um, For example, the doctrine of purgatory. But you can see how this was created, right? Because that played on the fear of the people, right? And so that was the whole idea: is to keep them in fear and guilt. Purgatory, if you didn't know, is said to be this middle ground between uh, um, heaven and hell. A place of paying a temporary penalty, um, and and a a place to be prepared for paradise. So you can see how this doctrine now fits very nicely with you want to shorten your time there, buy an indulgence, right? Or your uncle who died last year, you can buy an indulgence and shorten his time, right? That's you know this written certificate that was signed by the pope claiming it could grant remission of sins and therefore shortening the time there. You look at the Bible, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. They also would say, well, we're, how do, what, what, on what basis can an indulgence be given? Well, did you know there was a treasury of merit, a treasury of good works, and the good works of Mary and the saints and Christ's suffering, they would say, um, could be passed on to others. Lorraine Bettner, a theologian of 50 years ago, said, Thus not only the suffering and death of Christ, but also the good works of Mary and the saints become grounds for the forgiveness of your sins. One of Luther's uh, points, number 32, Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. The biggest trial for Luther was at the Diet of Worms in April 1521, four years after the Reformation. He's being confronted with a pile of his books on a table. Most of you have seen the movie if you want to visualize that, and Um, Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors of which they contain? Luther's response, very famous quote, bears repeating, "...unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God." I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. <clears throat> it's a miracle. He got away. He was kidnapped by friends, hidden in a, a castle in, in Wurtborg, and, um, and what did he do? That For that year that he was hidden, translated the Bible, the New Testament actually, into German Well, third, under the said, Scripture alone is the perfect rule of church life. Many in our day are guided by culture, what's the newest therapeutic and marketing techniques, and these are embraced as the Word of God is set aside. We get these things in the mail, we get email solicitations, try this new thing, and this whiz-bang thing, and draw a crowd. Biblically, you, church members, are called to be Bereans, you're called to examine everything that you hear in the Word of God, to know the Bible, to be in the Word of God, because Paul warns in First Timothy 4, but the Spirit explicitly says in the latter days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, and by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. You see, we have a responsibility to communicate the demands of the law, the holiness and righteousness of God, but the utter freedom of the gospel, the the goodness of the gospel, the free gospel that's based on the finished work of Christ. So first of all, Scripture alone. Second, sola gratia, our only method. You are not saved by good works. We have nothing to offer to God. Salvation is a gift, for by grace you have been saved. Grace alone is our battle cry. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, and in case you don't get it, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. See, our, our depraved nature wants to take a little bit of credit, doesn't it? I was so smart. I was studying. I was in Bible school. And, you know, I just, I, I just dug down and, and I discovered this. And we, we want to take some kind of credit, but we forget what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead. Do you know what dead means? Dead means if there's a corpse and I'm kicking it, it's not moving. It's dead. It's not breathing. Until the very breath of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, breathes life. He made us alive in Him. It's a beautiful term that Paul uses. Actually, three of these terms, they're participles. They're linked together. He made us alive together with Him. In the original Greek, it's very close with Christ, this union with Christ, the soon as at the beginning. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with Him, and He's seated us with Him. I love that aorist, past tense. That it's as good as done. We're already seated next to Him. It's a glorious thing. So saving grace is sovereign grace. Paul tells the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if, as though you have not received it? One of the other things that got under Luther's skin was, The idea of Johann Tetzel being sent to Germany by the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences, to raise money, to rebuild St. Peter's in Rome. Luther strongly objected to his sales pitch. Does anyone remember what it was? As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, ding! A soul from purgatory springs. That's a good sales pitch, isn't it? He you got your little. Maybe try that at Balboa Park. See how many coins we can get. We can give it to missions. <laughs> I'm just kidding with that. Obviously, we would not. But look at that. As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, and and who was he telling this to? Peasants who had very little. The extreme poor. They were sent into these places to squeeze whatever little bit they could get out of them. Luther insisted, of course, since forgiveness of sins was God's alone to grant, that this was an error. And so he says in uh, number 86, Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Krakus, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? So the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone separates us from all other religions. All those other religions want what? Human effort, right? Secondly, under this head, you're saved by God's sovereign grace alone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. In Romans 9, Paul puts it, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so it does not depend on the one who wills, the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Mercy. This is why when Luther spoke against the sale of indulgences, uh, not so much of their financial greed, but it was deceptive and destructive that the merit of an indulgence rested on the false assumption that there are extra credits from Mary and other saints. What's the result of that? If you could just tap in and get this extra merit, complacency, right? Right? Not true contrition, not true repentance. If you could just buy your way into heaven without the broken heart that David had in Psalm 32, right? So, scripture alone, grace alone, and by faith alone. Mark, I wonder if you can close the blinds right there. I'm getting a reflection that's really blinding me. <laughs> yes, that one. Thank you. <clears throat> Faith alone, our only means. Salvation is by grace alone, but the channel is through faith. Luther said that if ever there was a monk that could be saved and go to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Right? So he was so devoted. But in Romans, it's clear. We read this passage here, verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law amazingly in verse 26 he says so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus you know that that's that's a hard concept to get god's just he hates sin he's holy but he can justify me a sinner that's not holy right and of course we know that's on the merit of christ alone Faith and belief in Jesus, it's a wholehearted trust. Faith is the channel through which salvation flows to us. What did Paul tell that Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And so we have the idea of belief and faith, and Jesus is a rock-solid trust in him. Peter O'Brien says that if God's grace is the ground of salvation, then faith is the means by which it is appropriated. So faith itself, therefore, cannot be looked on as a good work. Many men are deceived by a false gospel, they complicate this. Um, you've got back to Charles Finney a couple hundred years ago, making, you know, claiming that, that, that basically salvation rested upon man and then many after. Um, even during um, Luther's time, you had Erasmus that basically wrote a discourse concerning free will, and Luther responded to that, and this is how the guys did it back then, without electric lights and without flushing toilets and without running water and had the time to write bohemoth volumes, right? Um, it's an amazing thing, a good use of their time. He writes back with one of his most famous books, The Bondage of the Will, which speaks of the total depravity of man and his inability to choose God apart from a supernatural work. Jesus himself says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God supplies all for our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing are you in Christ Jesus. The term evangelical has lost its, really uh, lost its meaning in our day. It used to be a bond of unity, of Christians who held to reformational truths, right? And now, what is it? It's an ecumenical exclusivity. Um, in the Cambridge Declaration, there's a phrase the light of the Reformation has significantly dimmed. And it has. At the same time, I will say that it is encouraging to see the growth of Reformed teaching and Reformed churches being planted around the world and missionary endeavors. It's very encouraging. No, I'm not post-mill, but it's very encouraging to see that things are moving in a very positive direction, and we should be praying earnestly for that. And our church is very involved in that with our Reformed Baptist network and praying for missionaries and seeing church re- revitalization strengthened and, and coming back to the the basic foundations. The Apostle Paul was zealous for the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, "...nevertheless, knowing that a man is, is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law." since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Three propositions there. And how does he say it earlier in the book in chapter 1? He says this, I am amazed at how quickly you're deserting him, you Galatians, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another Only are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, what does he say? Let him be slapped on the wrist. (laughs) Let him be chastised. Let him have a week of being grounded. No, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. If you're preaching another gospel than the one that he has preached, so scripture, grace, faith, but it's all, and this is key, Sola Christus, right? He is our only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is secured by the meritorial work of Christ. He is the object of our faith. There is one God and one mediator, right, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all. His unblemished and sinless life, His substitutionary atonement are all that is needed for your justification before God. We had a glorious prayer meeting this morning. We had a glorious time celebrating the Lord's Supper and we were talking about all of the humiliation that He endured, all of the mockings that He endured. Even from in the beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, really, he's, he's distressed and my soul is deeply grieved. And, and, and then the mockings before Pilate and, and the soldiers mocking him, but, but it was that sixth hour on the cross when darkness fell. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God pouring out all of his wrath against his own son, whom he loved so much, but his son was a substitute for us. He stood in our stead. We deserve that wrath. And yet Christ was a substitute. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our sins were imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us so that when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of His dear Son, His sinless Son, His unblemished Son. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Luther called this righteousness an alien righteousness that mean, well, we believe in aliens? No, it's a foreign righteousness. It's a righteousness that's foreign to us. It's an alien righteousness. It says in Romans 3, verse 24, "...being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith." A propitiation satisfying all of God's wrath until the very last drop of God's wrath was taken upon His Son. No more wrath for God's people, for their elect. Later in chapter 5 in Romans, He'll say, much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so the, the Roman Catholic Mass robs God of, of His glory. It robs Christ of His finished work. You know, they're, they're re- in their own mind re-sacrificing Christ at every single Mass. This is why the Gospel must be preached. This is why the book of Hebrews. This is why people need to understand if you're professing faith, you've got to understand the book of Hebrews. You'll never fall into that error. And glorious comfort. Uh, secondly, under the said, Christ alone is our great high priest. We've been studying that all through Hebrews and, and it's absolutely glorious to know that He sympathizes with us, that He prays for us. Rome is wrong in saying that there are seven sacraments, that you need a priest to administer infant baptism, to confess your sins to, to go into the, you know, all of that, all the way to the last rites. The Bible clearly condemns the sacerdotal approach to being right with God, that we have another human make me right that I might be able to approach God. We don't look to a priest. We don't look to a man. Earthly priest will fail you. We look to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we hold to the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. He is the cornerstone. He is the solid ground for us. We trust in his finished work. We never doubt it that He has died for my sins and I can be right with God. How freeing that is. How, how that lifts the, back, the backpack of guilt and being weighed down of with, with your sin to know that you are forgiven. And by the way, that amazing grace, that unconditional love, is a motive to what? Go out and sin all the more? No! We might grow in holiness and we might please Him all the more. It's a motive unto living lives right for God. And then lastly, sola de la gloria. Our complete resolve. Let's give God the glory. Amen? For our salvation, let's give Him the glory. There is no room for boasting about your salvation. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jonathan Edwards has said, Those who have received salvation are to attribute it to sovereign grace alone, to give all praise to him who makes them to differ from others. The Westminster Shorter says, What is the chief end of man? What's man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Where then is boasting, Romans 3.27 says, It is excluded. By what kind of law? By works? No, by the law of faith. So we must give him the glory that's due his name. This begins with maintaining God-centered worship. Even in our day, what passes for worship is often really created to scratch the itch of entertainment. Okay, And, um, And people want that. They don't want the plain preaching, as the Puritans said, of the word of God. They, they, want, they want to be entertained, but we need to realize God is on the throne and He takes His worship seriously. That's why we begin with a moment of silence. That's why we pray and we ask God's blessing for our worship service. We realize that it's a dangerous thing to come into the presence of God presumptuous. To offer strange fire to God can be deadly, right? Right? Pride is a very dangerous thing to give into. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? We don't have time to, to turn there um, in uh, uh, Daniel chapter four. He was made into a beast. He's you know look at my you know all that I've done, but he was humbled and he was restored, and his pride was broken. Do you give him glory for everything? Your salvation first and foremost. Your job, your family your social standing. We must live out our lives to God's glory and his alone. The Reformation also transformed the culture of its day. Michael Horton has put it most succinctly that I could find because it affected the work ethic, public education, civic and economic betterment, the revival of music and even of the arts, a sense of all life related somehow to God and His glory. These effects cause historians to observe the sense of irony of how a theology of sin and grace and the sovereignty of God over the helpless human beings and an emphasis on salvation by grace apart from works could be the catalyst for such an energetic moral transformation. The Reformers did not set out to launch a political or moral campaign, but they proved that when they put the gospel first and they gave voice to the word, that the effects inevitably follow. Thank God for the Reformation. And thank God that we can continue to be reforming the church. Well, in conclusion, maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure I can be right with God. Um, I'm I've sinned too much. Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're lost today and you're outside of Christ. Maybe the guilt of your sin is so great that it's, it's weighing you down and you don't know where to turn. Your conscience condemns you on the right and on the left and everything that you do. You need to understand that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The just shall live by faith. God saves by His grace and for His glory but you must repent and believe. You must admit that you're a sinner and you must run to Christ. Paul puts it simply, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You might be saved. You will be saved, right? That's the good news of the gospel. And those of us who are in Christ find great comfort in this gospel. Each of us have been hurt, and scarred from our time of living as slaves to sin. Each of us have, have encountered the trials and tribulation of even after we've been redeemed in this Christian life. But he is working something in us. He is shaping us into something, into the conforming us into the image of Christ. If you're trusting Christ, you're not a slave anymore, you're free. And the scars of Jesus is a constant reminder that He has paid it all and that you're redeemed. Once I made you, now I bought you. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. Cherish this word of God, this word that was neglected for largely for a thousand years, and it was this word that caused caused Luther to, to drill down how can God be just and I be justified and, and to drill down and to examine it's this, this word. So we don't want to neglect this word. Cherish the primacy of the word of God and in your individual devotions and the, the public worship that we engage in. Cherish it and love it and commit to knowing it better. Commit to having more reverence for God. Commit to being more enamored with the very attributes of God and characteristics of God, His majesty, His transcendence, His wisdom, His mercy, His grace, His love. Do you see how this is a, you never graduate from the school of studying God. You don't ever complete and get the full knowledge. In fact, I would go so far as to say that even in glory, even when we pass from this life, The depth and complexity of the triune God will be an eternal feast of learning and learning and learning more. Don't think that once you're there, you just, boop, you got everything and you understand God. You're going to never fully understand God because you're not God. You'll be without sin in a glorified body, but you're not God. And what a glorious time that will be. Let us be faithful unto that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the simplicity of your word that has been complicated by the sin of man. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cherish this gospel, to cherish your word of which so many have shed their blood and died to preserve for us. Lord, we pray for your church, a church even around San Diego, around this country that Many have departed on different levels um, from giving You the honor and glory that's due Your name, from worshiping with true reverence. And so, Lord, we do um, pray that You would revive Your church, that You would revitalize, that You would fortify with greater faith, that, that, that men would not be people-pleasers, that elders and pastors would not be people-pleasers and want to tickle ears but to stand upon the authority of your word and to be faithful unto you. Only you could do this. And Lord, we don't claim here at Grace Bible to have arrived and to be the perfect church. By no means continue to work in us and to purify your church here and to grow us. And we'll give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.